Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in that sycamore tree, for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Yes, I'm going to your house today. Yo, Jordan better watch his back. You know what I'm saying? Like, I should probably be leading worship with the pipes like that. You know, like. <laughs> Today, we get to actually jump into another story in our Intersect series where Jesus finds you to talk about this cat named Zacchaeus. There's all kinds of interesting things that happen within this story. And we talked about why we wanted to jump into a series called Intersect where we're actually going to spent time looking at people that Jesus found, okay? Uh, Who were the folks that Jesus was looking for? Uh, What did he say to them when he found them? What did he do for them? Because if we are a church, we are intended to be the local presence of Jesus Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, doing what Jesus did, saying what Jesus said, being a part of our community, just like Jesus would have been finding folks that Jesus want to find like that's supposed to be our role and so if we're actually going to live that out then we've got to understand all right who are the folks that jesus found and what did he say to them when he found them and what did he do for them and this morning we get to look at a cat named zacchaeus now uh this cat was rich Uh, he was incredibly hated and he probably looked a lot like danny devito's character frank from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. At least that's the image that I have of what Zacchaeus probably looked like. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love you to open up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read from there in just a minute. But before we can jump into it, we've got to get a little bit of history to understand why Luke shares this story at this place. So back in Luke 18, just one chapter before, uh, Luke has just shared that Jesus has told his disciples now for the third time, that he's going to Jerusalem, where he's going to be uh, crucified, murdered, killed, buried. And then on the third day, he's going to rise back to life. In fact, he's just said it. Oh my goodness, that little girl right there, she is so adorable. And she just is staring at me and I just can't help myself. Hi, baby girl. You're so cute. (laughs) Jesus has just said that uh, he's going to die in the most explicit of terms. and, And the disciples still don't quite get it. Uh, Just before Jesus has told them that, though, he has shared a parable. A parable is just like a short story that Jesus makes up to really kind of share a point. And it's the parable of the uh, uh, tax collector and the Pharisee. Now, in in Jesus' time, Pharisees were like top of the food chain, the people you wanted to try to beat, okay? Like they were seen as like the best of the best because they did everything right and, 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 and followed all the laws and not just all the laws, but all the extra laws that they had made up above and beyond what God's law said. And so they were like the best of the best and a tax collector, like they were the worst of the worst. They were uh, traitors really to their fellow Israelites serving Rome, who Israel hated because they were the conquering uh, 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 nation, uh, kingdom at the time. And so uh, Jesus tells this parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes into the temple to pray, and he basically spends a whole lot of time telling God about how good he is, how awesome and amazing he is, and how thankful God ought to be, basically, that uh, he follows him. And he's like, and thank you that I'm not like that 
tax collector. And the tax collector in the story, Jesus says, can't even raise his face towards heaven. He just comes in and kind of almost hides himself and he just starts telling God about how awful he is and uh, how much he needs God. And, and Jesus says that the hero of the story is not the best of the best. It's actually the worst of the worst because God is more uh, concerned about the heart attitude with which we come to him. And so uh, everybody at the time would have been shocked. Like, are you kidding me? Like, how can Jesus say that? Like, how, how can, like, the tax collector, the, 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 the traitor, the one who doesn't follow any, like, he's a, like, he's not even a real Jew anymore. And, and Jesus says, that's the one, though, that's the one that God is pleased with. In fact, it says that he's the one who walked away receiving mercy, receiving grace, receiving forgiveness. And it's with that backdrop that we find ourselves now jumping into Luke chapter 19, Jesus is about two weeks away from being crucified in Jerusalem. He's heading into Jericho, which is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and he plans to simply pass through. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. When uh, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. It's a bit of an understatement. We'll explain why in just a minute. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Uh, now let's just talk real briefly about what we've just read. Jesus is entering Jericho. It's, it's about, about a six to eight hour walk from there to Jerusalem. He plans to simply pass through Jericho. He's not necessarily planning on staying there. Uh, Luke tells us. He winds up staying there. We'll, ex we'll explain why in a little bit. And as he's uh, uh, doing that, uh, he comes into, into Jericho. We find out about this character all of a sudden comes into the story. Now, the name Zacchaeus is actually quite interesting. Uh, Luke does this a lot within his gospel where things will kind of have uh, dual meanings. Uh, Zacchaeus literally means uh, pure or righteous. In fact, the, the root word that the name Zacchaeus comes from, it's a Hebrew word, Zacchae, and that means innocent. Now, this tells us a couple things about Zacchaeus. Uh, number one, his parents, when they named him, because names are always very important, what you name someone. Uh, I just met this young gal down here, Phoenix, right? Which is an awesome name about things being reborn, rebirth. That name has meaning, right? And so does the name Zacchaeus. His parents had hopes and dreams for him. And I guarantee it was never for him to become a tax collector, let alone a chief tax collector, because the chief tax collector was anything but pure, anything but righteous, anything but innocent. And yet, by the end of the story, Luke's going to show us how Jesus actually now interacting with Zacchaeus does something that no one thought could possibly be done. So it says that he was a chief tax collector, he was wealthy, we'll get back to that in a minute. He wants to see Jesus, but cat's really short, all right? Like, I'm short, but like, he must have been like real short, okay? So, uh, the text says that he is going to run ahead. Now, a couple things here. Uh, a man in Israel at this time culturally does not run. You might walk with purpose, but you don't run. Like, that's what little kids do. Little kids run, men walk, okay? The fact that uh, Zacchaeus is like, man, I don't even care. Like, I'm running to do whatever I got to do to try to see this cat that I keep hearing about, this Jesus guy. Like the whole town would have been a buzz because of everything that Jesus had been doing over the last three years. And, 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 and they know that Jesus is coming. And so crowds are gathering and 
Like we're going to see that a lot of folks were coming into Jerusalem uh, for Passover, which was going to be happening in a couple weeks. And so Zacchaeus knows and he wants to see. And so he's like, man, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm running. Now, Zacchaeus was probably already a guy that was on the outs. All right. He would have been hated by his fellow Jews. And, and so he basically probably doesn't care a whole lot about what they think. Uh, then we find out that he actually climbs a tree. Now, if you think a man ain't supposed to run in this culture, how much more is a man not supposed to be climbing trees? You know, like that's definitely what little kids do. But here's the cool thing that Luke has done for us. You see, just a few verses earlier in chapter 18, Luke also tells a story about Jesus welcoming little children. He says uh, in chapter 18, verse 17, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. And what, what he's basically saying is that there's something pure and vulnerable and humble about children, right? They don't come in with pretense, trying to pretend that there's something that they're not. There's something, and Jesus says, like, if you want to experience salvation, live in the kingdom, you have to enter it like a little child. And now here we have Zacchaeus, a grown man, running like a little child, climbing a tree like a little child, showing that he's more interested in seeing who this Jesus is than he is in what other people think about him. So we continue on. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, that's a big deal. Uh, Zacchaeus was a man of means, like big means, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he says that Jesus, from here on out, after having an experience with Jesus, Jesus has basically invited himself over to eat with Zacchaeus, to spend time with him around his table at his house, and something changes for Zacchaeus. And he says, I'm going to give away half my, what I have, half my wealth to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give them four times. Now, according to Jewish law, if you admit that you had stolen from someone, you were required to pay them back what you had stolen plus 20%, okay? Now, if you got caught stealing, and uh, it wasn't like you confessed it, uh, you were supposed to give back uh, 200%. So what you stole and then double that. Okay. Uh, in very, very few cases. In fact, I don't think we have anything in scripture that actually tells us that this was commanded, but, uh, it is mentioned that in some very rare cases, you might have to give back fourfold, 400%. Zacchaeus in this story, because he's the one who comes forward and says, if I've done this, I want to pay it back really what by law, Jewish law, which he would have known he's required to basically do hundred percent plus 20%. Okay. But Zacchaeus says, no, 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 I'm going like all the way. 400, I'll give 400% of what I've stolen to anyone that I've done because he's had this massive transformation. And, and we see in verse 9, Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now there's a couple things that we know about Zacchaeus that are important for us to really kind of understand so we can know how huge this story actually was for those that were there in Jericho at the time. 
Uh, first and foremost, we find out that he's a tax collector, but not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. So the way that Rome set up collecting taxes was they would actually bid it out to the highest bidder. So uh, it was usually the Roman elite wealthy that would bid to try to collect taxes for a particular province, okay? So they would bid and say, well, we'll give you this much in taxes, and, and uh, the Roman uh, government would say, all right, we're going to accept that. You win the bid. They would then go to that region. They would set up managers who would then uh, uh, basically oversee all of the collecting of the taxes who would hire tax collectors. So the managers and the tax collectors were usually folks that were from the area. So this is true here in Jerusalem. And they, uh, Jews can't stand the fact that Rome is ruling over them. They hate the fact that they're supposed to now pay taxes. Uh, they, these taxes were usually quite high. And they especially hated that it was some of their fellow Israelites who were collecting the taxes because they didn't just collect what was needed. They always collected extra and above. You see, that's how they earned their living. And so the more that they could extort, the better for them. In fact, we read this in Smith's Bible Encyclopedia. Listen to a little bit of what this would have been like. The system was essentially a vicious one, and finding remedy or relief was all but impossible. Tax collectors were encouraged to exact as much tax as possible. They overcharged whenever they had an opportunity. They brought false charges of smuggling in the hope of extorting hush money. They detained and opened letters on mere suspicion. It was the basest of all livelihoods. So, like, you couldn't have had a worse job. Like, Jews thought you were, like, the worst of the worst. And they didn't like that they were being taxed anyway. And now that it's coming from someone who's supposed to be a fellow brother or sister... Uh, in fact, the priests, the Pharisees, they, they would often uh, tell the people, hide your goods. Lie to the tax collectors. Don't tell them how much you actually have. Try to downplay the value so that they can't tax you on more. Like the way that even the Pharisees were saying, like, if you can get away with paying as little or no taxes, like do whatever you can to try that because they thought that it was unlawful. So tax collectors were put into the same category as murderers and thieves and were not considered Jews anymore. They were considered Gentiles. So like the filthiest of the filthy, unclean, you never want to spend time with them. Now, we know that Cat is rich, okay? The text tells us that he's wealthy, but uh, he's like really wealthy. And the reason that we know that is because this is Jericho. Now, this is kind of an, an interesting thing. Uh, Jericho had these uh, groves of balsam trees, and the sap from the balsam tree was made into medicine, and it was known around the world, and this was the only place that it was grown. So there were massive amounts of money that was coming in and out of Jericho, which means that uh, Zacchaeus was going to collect massive amounts of tax and was going to be able to line his pockets. So he had to be one of the wealthier people in this entire region because he oversaw all the other tax collectors. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Dioscorides or Dioscorides, I don't know how you say his name, deodorant, Doritos, something like that. Uh, uh, he was a doctor that lived from 40 AD to 90 AD, and this is what he says that this uh, balm of Gilead, you maybe have even heard that term before, it comes from right here, this stuff, this is what he said is good for, assisting breathing and conception, being an antidote for aconite, which is a highly poisonous flower, or snake bites, for treating pleurisy, pneumonia, cough, sciatica, epilepsy, vertigo, asthma, and gripes. Now, I don't know if gripes are the same thing that my kids do at bedtime, but, like, I need some of that stuff for my kids. You know, it's like, it's like the duct tape of ancient medicine. Like, the stuff was used for everything, okay? And, and, and it made it incredibly valuable. Uh, 
actual battles were fought over Jericho strictly because of this tree that was grown there. It was the only place in the world at the time that it was being grown. Uh, it no longer exists anymore, uh, but it was uh, incredibly, made this part of the, the area incredibly valuable. So uh, Zacchaeus is a rich, rich man because of this. So what does Jesus do? Jesus eats with him. You're like, all right, well, big deal. We had a meal together. Like, what's... No, this is a massive deal for anybody in the ancient Near East because who you ate with, especially for Jews, was massively important. Uh, Jesus winds up sharing a meal with Zacchaeus and everybody, it says, starts to grumble, starts to talk. Are you, like, they're like, are you kidding me? I think at the time, I read this in, in, in one of the books that I was doing some research on, and, and I think they said there's like 12,000 Pharisees in the region at that time. People are like, there's so many, like you could be having dinner with the best of the best, and instead, like, you're going over to that dude's house? Like, don't you know, Jesus, what, what he's going to do? You're on your way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to be at the temple, to worship God, and you're hanging out with the dude that's going to make you, like, nasty, disgusting, unclean, contaminated. Why in the world is Jesus going to hang out with this guy, of anybody? Like, the people are furious about it. Uh, there was a whole bunch of literature that's written in what we call the intertestamental period. So you've got the Old Testament that's written, okay? And then there's about 400 years between when the last book of the Old Testament is written and when uh, Jesus comes on the scene and the New Testament uh, gets written, okay? So about 400 years, give or take. We don't have any scripture within that time frame, but there's a lot of stuff that's written. We don't think that it's inspired word of God, but there's a lot of stuff that's written there and that it's valuable to kind of understanding what uh, um, Jews thought of, what kind of like what was going on in uh, Judea, Jerusalem at the time, how people would have responded. Uh, listen to this from Jubilee. Uh, this was written about, uh, I don't know, somewhere in this time period, maybe about 50 years earlier. And, and it's telling Jews what they're supposed to do and how they interact with Gentiles. Now remember, Zacchaeus is a Gentile. That's how they see him. He says this in Jubilees, separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. You're like, bro, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> like they're like, so like, don't have anything to do with the Gentiles. Like, they're just going to make you contaminated and despicable and abominable. And yet Jesus goes and says, hey, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down to the tree? Let's go hang at your place. Let's go eat together. And the Jews had all kinds of different things that you were supposed to do to stay ceremonially clean. Uh, ways you're supposed to wash your hands. So uh, they would say, pour some water, starting on the fingertips until it ran down off the elbow. And then flip your arm over and pour it on the elbow until it ran down on your fingertips and then one more time on the fingertips down to the elbow and you had to do that for both hands and that was one of the ways that you would become ceremonially clean and Jesus didn't seem to care about these extra rules that the Pharisees had brought on he goes to hang out and eat and can you imagine if you're sitting there and you're like he is eating with that dude and that dude got rich off of my back because he stole from me and he stole from my neighbor and he's eating good food because dude's rich and Jesus is eating that good food with him. And he's eating off of a table that was bought with my stolen money and on a bowl that was bought with my stolen money. And how could Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus know that he's getting so contaminated? And yet 
what happens? Have you ever heard of chicken pox parties? <laughs> uh, this is even crazier. They actually, uh, it's illegal, but some people try to sell chicken pox pops. That like your little kid had chicken pox and you made them suck on a whole bunch of lollipops and then you put them in bags and zip them up and then you sell them to people so they can get their kids sick with chicken pox. Disgusting, right? Uh, they actually do chicken pox parties because some folks don't want to vaccinate uh, their kids from chicken pox, even though there's a vaccine now. And so they'll be like, hey, we're going to have a party because little little Meredith has got the chicken pox. So bring your healthy kids over and they can get chicken pox too, Okay. So now, uh, when you bring your healthy kid over to contaminate a kid's house, the expectation is what? That healthy kid gets contaminated, right? You never expect, like, hey, uh, bring your healthy kid over to uh, my, you know, sick kid, uh, to my house, to my sick kid, hoping that instantly sick kid gets healed, right? Like, that's not why you do chicken pox parties. It's not to try to get the chicken pox kid from not having chicken pox anymore. It's so that you all get chicken pox. You see, what happens in this story, though, is instead of Jesus becoming contaminated, Jesus is actually the anti-contagion. He's the, like, reverse contagion. Like, Jesus actually comes in contact with that which is dirty, who is named pure, innocent, and righteous. And Jesus, by coming in contact with him, does not get dirty himself, but actually makes Zacchaeus pure and righteous again. You see, that's what Jesus does. And it's all because he decided to have a meal with him. You see, eating is something that God seems to care about in massive ways. I don't think we think about this a whole lot. But listen to uh, a quote from a, an article that I read. A guy by the name of Dr. Barry Jones. He's a, a pastor and a professor down in Texas. Uh, he's a foodie himself, which I pretend to be a foodie. I can't make food, but I love to eat food, and uh, I love to eat like all kinds of good tasting food. And he says he's a foodie, loves to make meals, and he says this. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that food is one of God's love languages. Think about it. The average human has about 10,000 taste buds, and the only explanation I can conceive for why that would be is that God loves us. Like, really loves us. After all, it didn't have to be that way. God did not have to make us capable of experiencing such delight. He could have made us the sort of creatures for whom food is merely fuel. Our 10,000 taste buds are a display of grace, an expression of his love. Did you know that humans are the only ones that eat food at a table? I go down to a place in Three Rivers called the Hermitage. I try to get down there twice a year. It's a, a, a silent spiritual retreat center. And so you go and you, you hang out in silence. It's a time for you to just be with God. Uh, the only time that you gather with other people is at the three meals of the day. And they have this big farm table uh, in the basement of this old barn that they've converted into all these little rooms. And you come together and you eat in silence. And uh, when there's like, you know, seven or eight people there, it's not totally awkward. But when there's like you and one other person, that's a little bit strange, you know, it's weird, but you hear noises you don't normally hear when you're eating, okay? Uh, there's something, though, beautiful about sharing something connecting that happens when you share a meal together, even in silence. There are some words, though, that, that, that are said, and they're really kind of the only words you generally hear while you're there. It's, uh, it's a quote that I have fallen in love with, uh, and it's something they say just before they serve the meal. Food is God's love made edible. Food is God's love made edible. And, and I've 
come to realize that I, that I think that that is absolute truth. Um, Dr. Jones, who wrote this article, shares a quote from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says this, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. You see, in the Last Supper, what's going to take place just uh, about a week and a half from this story here in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, Jesus sits down with his disciples at a table, and they share a meal together, and it's in that meal that he institutes communion, or Eucharist, when we gather to share in Christ's body and blood as a way to remind them, and instead of giving them a theory, an explanation of what he's going to do, he gives them a meal, and it's so beautiful. Uh, Dr. Jones goes on and says this, when Jesus himself, uh, excuse me, uh, in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Eugene Peterson has observed that this pattern of being blessed, broken, and given is at the heart of the Christian story. There, he rightly insists, this is the shape of the Eucharist, this is the shape of the gospel. This is the shape of the Christian life, blessed, broken, and given. Friends, the table is intended to be a place of blessing. Uh, when we gather around the table, uh, Christians often thank God for what they're about to receive because we're reminded that it is in the eating of food that God reminds us of his goodness to us, of his love for us, of his care for us, that he takes care of us. And so the table is often a place of blessing where we get to gather and laugh and share and enjoy each other's company. The table is intended to be a place of blessing, but the table is also a place of brokenness. Uh, in, in, in John chapter 21, Jesus has died, been buried, and has risen back to life. He's already come to the disciples once. It's a couple days later. The disciples, some of them are out fishing. They don't catch anything after fishing all night. Jesus is on the shore, and he calls out to them, hey, did you catch anything? And they're like, no, we didn't catch anything. They don't know that it's Jesus yet. And he says, throw your net on the other side. And so they throw their net on the other side. They pull it up, and there's all these fish in there. And Peter is the first to recognize that's Jesus. So Peter actually, the text says, grabs his outer cloak, throws it on, jumps out of the boat into the water. The very fact that he grabs his outer cloak makes me think he thought he was going to walk in. <laughs> All right, he had that experience once before. It didn't go so well for him. He thinks he's probably going to, he jumps in, he doesn't walk. He falls through and swims and gets up there and he's soaking wet. And Jesus is up there on the beach and Jesus is actually making them breakfast. In fact, the text says that, that there is uh, um, charcoal fire that he's grilling some fish on for their breakfast. And this is at that breakfast where Jesus reinstates Peter because just a few nights before, Peter had denied that he knew Jesus three times after promising that he would be with Jesus. He would die with Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter's like, no, I'm not. And then Peter goes to deny him three times. And the, in the text, the word there for fire, that charcoal fire that Jesus is making a meal for them at, it's the same charcoal fire, the same word is used, in John 18, in the third scene where Peter denies Jesus for the third time. You see, for Peter, shame has a smell connected to it. And now here in John 21, Peter is at a meal with Jesus, and Jesus, in his love, is reinstating Peter, telling him that it's okay, that he's forgiven, that Peter needs to remember who he is and whose he is. It's a beautiful, powerful moment 
where in his brokenness, Jesus comes around him. And friends, we're all broken. The table of gathering together is a place of brokenness where we get to come around other folks who will then encourage us and love us and help to reinstate us, as it were, and encourage us on the journey and walk with us in our brokenness. It's a place where we get to share in that. The table is meant to be a place of blessing, a place of brokenness, and ultimately a place of givenness. We are given to this world to represent Jesus. We are given to this world to offer a place at the greatest feast of all time, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so the table is intended as a place of givenness where we have the privilege of inviting people around a table to share a meal with them, to share our blessing, our brokenness, and ultimately our givenness to begin to share with them the most beautiful gift the world has ever received, Christ. That's what the table's intended to be. That's why the table was so beautiful and powerful in the story of Zacchaeus. Because for the first time in a long time, Zacchaeus came into contact with one who is pure and righteous and innocent. And for the first time, Zacchaeus in a long time actually meant and found that he too could experience life transformation. Friends, we need to be a people of the table. In verse 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what did you come for? I mean, if you think that you've been placed on this earth to be a good nurse or teacher or mom or dad or designer or a factory line worker or student or dancer or whatever it is that you happen to do, like those are great things and work at it with all your heart. In fact, Scripture wants you to. But if you think that's why you were placed on this earth, you're missing out on the greatest thing ever. You see, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Friends, that's why Jesus has ultimately placed you on this earth. That's why he's given you the gifts that you have to be a nurse or a lawyer or a teacher or a uh, uh, whatever it is that you happen to be. It's so that you can help bring people to the table to share with them your blessing and your brokenness and ultimately your givenness the opportunity to share Christ. So I hope that we here at TLC get to be a church that is about inviting people into our lives. We want to be a people who seek and save the lost. So who are you inviting over for a meal? Who are you sharing your table with? We want to be a people that help share meals as individuals and as families with people who are lost. Folks who are lost in selfishness, folks who are lost in fear, folks who are lost pretending that everything's perfect, folks who are literally lost, the refugees and foreigners among us, folks who are lost in the riches, folks who are lost in their poverty. We want to be a church that opens up our tables to the lost. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for the privilege we have of hearing stories of people that you found and what you said to them and what you did for them. And Jesus, in this day, uh, we're reminded that you are a God who loves the table. And God, we want to be a people who are recognizing our blessing, recognizing our brokenness, and recognizing ultimately our givenness. That we would invite the lost to gather around our tables to share with them what we have found. Thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. 
thank you for the table. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to love you in return. It's in your son's beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for coming out. We'll see you next week.